0: Let's pray before we begin on our word this morning. Dear God, we thank you for your word. Lord, that he is a light to our path. Father, we pray that we would be res- uh, receiving this word that you have intended for us to hear today. Lord, that we would actively participate in its hearing that it would stir our conscience that it would move us to action as a result of hearing it Lord I pray that you will be with me today as I lead through these scriptures Father I pray that your word would shine and be illuminated Lord, we thank you for this time together to rejoice in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. All right. If you have your sword unsheathed right now, please turn with me. Or if you have it on your phone version, that's the sword as well. That's fine. Please go to 1 Thessalonians 3, 11, through 13. Now, title today's message as a prayer of love and blamelessness. Today's passage is a conclusion of sort of part one of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. If you've read epistles before, you know that the pattern of Paul is to first start off with brotherly love and encouragement, a longing to see those people that he's speaking to again. And often it is, it is filled with wishes and prayers of love that Paul has for those that he is writing to. And Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, is nothing different. Paul starts in the same way. So these first three chapters that we have read have included Paul's desire to see the first Thessalonians, excuse me, to see the Thessalonians grow in the Lord and be alive uh, to those around them. So, as we read 1 Thessalonians 3 11 through 13, now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus, with all of his saints. Some would call this, and if I turn on my pointer here, it would work better. Um, Some would call this a wish prayer. Um, I think that is a useful thing to refer to this with, but I would kind of make that a little bit more concrete by saying this is a, a prayer in confidence <laughs> to, uh, to the Thessalonians, about the Thessalonians, to the Lord. This is the form of a prayer that is much like you would find in, in the Old Testament. This is something of a Hebrew tradition. If you go to Psalm 20, you go with me there in the word, Psalm 20, you'll find the tradition, if you will, that Paul is following in closing this first part of the letter. In Psalm 20, verses 1 through 5. This is what it says. May the Lord answer you on a day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and accept your burnt offerings. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your whole plan. We will will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your desires. So what is expressed in a prayer like that in the Psalms is those things that we want to have as a benediction, right? As a blessing. May the Lord keep you until we see each other again, right? Often um, in perhaps more formal church settings, there is a specific portion at the end of the service that they would even call the benediction. And they would have a blessing to the congregation at that time. If you've ever been a part of a service that... um, Dr. Earl Blackbird has preached for us, he often will do the same thing. He will formally bless the congregation after he has has preached. We do that in a little bit of a modified way. We pray before the ending of each service, right? So very, very similar. But that is exactly what Paul is doing at the end of the third chapter here in 1 Thessalonians. So he has what he desires the Lord to do in the lives of this fledgling church. This is the closing section of this first part of the letter. Now, if you know anything about Paul, what's in North and Carolina, North Carolina, what's fixing to happen after this, right? He's going to get down to business, right? he's going to have a he's going to have part of his letter be exhortation confrontation and exhorting them through scripture right so we're ending sort of the friendly portion here and the encouragement section and we're going into exhortation next so when we get back together next sunday we'll start on chapter 4 and there he starts talking about um Uh, morality he will later on talk about the second coming so this serves as an introduction to some of those things notice really quickly that at the beginning of this in verse 11 look at how he has equivalents To God the Father and our Lord Jesus in the same sentence. Commenters that I looked at went a little bit back and forth on this, but there's general consensus that Paul mentioning them both in the same breath, as it seems, is showing that he truly does um, believe that they are equivalents. They are equivalent personalities. of God, the Lord Jesus, and the Father himself. So what are we going to do today? We're going to look at how Paul blesses them by using these names of God. We're going to look at Paul exhorting them about their love. We're going to talk about what blamelessness means, and we're going to talk about the Lord's return. So that sounds like an action-packed sermon, I know, (laughs) but these are going to be very concise pieces, okay? Uh, We could certainly spend all week on just these concepts outlined, um, but we will hit on those today. So what are these names of God? Um, first of all god uh theos theos is the God right this is the one God uh, theos Father is uh pater, the heavenly father and the Lord Jesus is compounded between korios that is the master, and Jesus, which is the Lord's actual name, right? Yeshua, Joshua. So when we see these different names um, in the Greek, they're all, Paul uses them in equivalence in terms of they are all God, the Father, uh, the Lord, Jesus. They're all equivalents. Jesus and the Father being personalities of the Godhead. Now look at the love that Paul espouses to the Thessalonians. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Why would why would Paul have a desire to see love abound in Thessalonica because it's commanded the lord jesus commanded us to love if you look at john 3:35 by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another when someone walks into our church meeting there should be a warmth for other christians there there should be a warmth for other people there it should not feel like that everyone is frozen to frozen or rusted to their chair <laughs> the body of christ is living and it it thrives on the love that we have for one another Paul doesn't just say that his desire is to see this abound in the church, but that it would also have an overflow effect to the community and all people. Paul isn't usually, does not usually, by the way, talk about for all people. But this is one of a couple of different verses in his writings where he does refer to the love for all people if you read through 3 of the lord's apostles all of these verses that i've pulled from john's writings both in the gospel of john and first and second john he refers to loving one another he says we are to love one another in first john 3:11 in 1 John 4, 7, he said, Beloved, let's love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Four twelve 12, he continues, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. And in 2 John 1, 5, he says, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Seems pretty important to John. Our love for one another in the body of Christ. And not just in our little congregation, right? Right. us us 40 and no more, right? But to the universal body of Christ, those that have been redeemed, you can read through John's writings, you can read through the writings of Paul, you can read through the writings of Peter, and all three of these apostles in their New Testament writings are going to reiterate this command. If we're hearing it from three of the Lord's handpicked apostles, and not just once, but iteratively, throughout all their writings, Paul speaks about it in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, and Hebrews. This love for one another. And Peter also speaks about it. Peter says, since you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brothers and sisters, fervently love one another from the heart in 1 Peter 1.22. So do we think that it might be important with all of these men telling us and commanding us to love one another that we actually do it? Well, how do we do it? What does love look like? Is that just, you know, Christiane drawing a big heart and handing it to me? Maybe, but uh, it's not just that, right? Um, our love for each other is demonstrated through several things. Um, Paul wants this this love to overflow. The, the language here includes just kind of bursting, Okay, a container that's just busting out of its sides um, with all of this love coming from the church to the people around it. We love through, if you read through all of those verses that I just ran quickly through, we love through our demeanor. Our demeanor is one of humility and gentleness. We don't approach each other going for the jugular. In other words, Um, humility and gentleness are the marks of the body of Christ. We love through our actions. We love through service and encouragement to other people. And here I would challenge you, when is the last time that you served someone in the name of Christ in church or out when's the last time that you took time in service to someone else encouragement we have so many ways to communicate so many ways to communicate far more than Paul and Timothy did and Silas We can text, we can call, we can visit, carrier pigeon, whatever you need to do. But, um, but encouragement is so, should be so easy to do now. Um, I personally do like text. I try to encourage people that way and hope that it, uh, hope that it doesn't necessarily interrupt them, but instead it strengthens them during the week when I'm able to to talk to them. I would encourage the church body, this isn't just an elder responsibility, right? This is a Christian responsibility. We all have our own service that the Lord has given for us to do those good works that he prepared before time, the word says, for us to do. And so we need to find what those actions are that the Lord would have us involved in. Our contact and our fellowship and gospel sharing are also ways, gospel sharing um, in the way of how we are to do the for all people that Paul mentioned Um, Our love is shown as we share the gospel. These These are how our love for God, just some really quick practical ways, that our love for God is seen by the congregation and by the world. Unfortunately, all those ways of communication that I just mentioned are also used to smear the body of Christ. And it seems like the media loves to take a pastor that has fallen, a pastor that's been caught in sin, a teacher that has done something wrong, a president of a seminary who has been involved in something, whenever those things are found out, they are magnified because the world hates the fact that someone would declare the truth and loves to catch those that are hypothetically saying um, one thing and doing one another. So let's use them for good means. This concept of fellowship, has anybody ever been through, and now it was the 1990s, so some of y'all, you know, might've been very young at that point, but 1990s, Henry Blackaby wrote a, a study called Experiencing God. Pluses and minuses, everything that everybody ever writes has a little bit of criticism attached to it. But I really do think that Dr. Blackaby had a lot of good things that he said during the course of that study. And one of the things that he talked about as being kingdom people in the study was that we have this Christian fellowship called Quanonia. And it's repeated um, throughout the New Testament and in verses like Acts 242, Romans 15.26, all of these I have listed, First Corinthians 1:9, 1 Corinthians 10.16, 1 uh, 10, 16, all of all of these mention this Greek word. It means a fellowship, association, communion, joint participation. Contact, fellowship, and intimacy. One thing that I love about a small church is that we all do know each other. Better or worse, (laughs) right? Thick and thin, we all do know each other. It's pretty hard to hide in a congregation of 30 or 40 people. I love that. The church that Rita and I met in, that we were going to at the time, I believe now the sanctuary holds 4,000 people now, Rita. Um, you do not have fellowship except for the section that you're sitting in, right? Or in your individual Sunday school uh, departments. That's where we met. Um, and we got to know each other. It was actually in a small little group. We were young. We were misinformed, okay? I'll just say that. But... Um, It's hard to have that type of intimacy in that large of a church, not saying that it's impossible. But that is one thing I think that we really get to enjoy here. We do know each other. We need to also love each other in being more connected to each other, church. I really do think that we could all do a better job of checking in with each other, of praying with, for each other throughout the course of the week. If you have a need, please contact a church member or one of our uh, one of our leaders. We'd love to talk to you. We are busy. We have families, but we have a calling, as do you, right. Um, all of us as Christians, and you know what that might look like is someone someone that is in your direct age group. Maybe it doesn't look like that. Maybe you need to <laughs> encourage someone that is older than you, but please do make an effort to contact people throughout the week. It takes. 30 seconds to write a text, right? So I, I do encourage that, especially when it is accompanied by scripture. If you particularly read something in your devotion and think, man, Stephen could really use this. I need to, I need to share this with him. Or man, I think, I think maybe Jeremy needs to hear this particular thing right now. Send it. You only know that by speaking to people. And talking to them about what their prayer needs are and what the Lord is doing with them. That's the only way that we know anything about that, right? I do. I I would love to encourage that. And I, I, I may sound like a broken record today, but I want to get that point across to us. If people know us by our love, what love are we currently demonstrating to each other? Just for all of our thoughts. So then we come to verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Lots to unpack in one verse, right? So let's read this. Let's look at this first section. Um, First of all, the heart is someone's inward desire, right? Inward thoughts. Our hearts would be blameless. Um, What is blamelessness? How does he establish our hearts to be blameless in holiness? And why does he point towards the second coming of the Lord Jesus? Just a very quick note as well is when he talks about the saints here, as NASB uh, translates it, this also could be interpreted holy ones, and there's a little bit of there's a little bit of a head scratcher there as to whether this does mean saints, or it it means his angels, or it could mean both. But we know in looking at Revelation that it involves both, <laughs> right? When the Lord comes in his second coming, he comes with his, both his holy angels and the redeemed. Wow. Uh, so just a, a brief sidebar rabbit trail. So blameless is a It's used in four other scriptures besides this in the New Testament. It's used in Luke one six when Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of who? Zechariah and Elizabeth, yes, John the Baptist, and it talks about them being blameless as they walked in the commandments. In Philippians two fifteen. It uses blameless and contextually talks about being without complaints, and we'll look fully at 2.15 in a moment, and then Philippians 3.6, Paul calls himself blameless in the law. This is the big section where he's talking about his credentials. If there were any credentials to be had, Paul talks about being of the tribe of Benjamin and all of those different things, a Pharisee and keeping the law and all that good stuff. And in it, he calls himself blameless in the law. And lastly, excuse me, in Hebrews 8, 7, uh, it refers to the first covenant not being blameless or faultless. So just to kind of contextualize how this same kind of Greek word is propagated into those different verses i think gives us a context to understand what blameless means um so i promised that we would expand on philippians 2 14 through 17. look at what blameless is and see how it may apply to you in reading reading this scripture Philippians 2, 14 through 17, if you'd like to turn there in your own Bibles. You guys ready? Do all things without complaining or arguments, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world holding firmly the word of life so that on the day of Christ, I can take pride because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So how are we to look blameless and innocent in verse 15? And what are the effects of being blameless and innocent? First of all, do all things without complaining or arguments. That's that's a sermon right there in and of itself. Standalone sermon, do all things (laughs) without complaining or arguments. What a world we would live in if I never heard complaining or arguments. Maybe I wouldn't have as as 40 hours of a job sometimes. Uh, do all things without complaining. And in this context, do all things related to service in the church without complaining or arguments so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The only thing, especially young people, the only thing that you need to do to stand out among your peers is to actually have this sort of blamelessness about you. If you're following what the Lord says... You automatically stand out. My goodness, even if you keep your word and say you're gonna do something and actually do it, you will stand out from my experience, frankly. I know I know Richard, Danny, Jesse, all of us have talked about at work how sometimes we just can't even believe you know some things in, in behavior that we observe um. All you have to do to stand out is to follow the Lord. And this speaks to this generation. They don't understand. They don't understand why you're 16 or 17 and don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend. They don't understand that. They don't understand as, as a young man or young woman, While you're not living with your boyfriend, cheat on your taxes, whatever, just name it, right? They don't understand why you don't do those things. Um, but we have a higher calling, right? And it is to stand out among this very perverse generation. If there ever was a perverse generation It's very evident to us that this is one of those. Okay. So we're to appear as lights in the world. So blamelessness is not just so we can appear polished, you know, and buttoned up. It's to actually have a spiritual effect to those around us. This shouldn't be fake, this shouldn't be just behavioral this should come out of a blameless heart that's desires are changed so how does he make us blameless he makes it makes us blameless through imputation and sanctification what do you mean mark big theological word imputation okay don't make fun of my graphic skills okay skull equals sin Dove equals righteousness in this diagram, okay? You can figure out what the other two mean. But we have, theologically, we have what's called a double imputation. Where we give to Jesus our sin and the wrath that we deserve. He gives us the righteousness that we do not deserve, And that is why I have this two-way. So the only thing that we have to contribute to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. You ever heard that quote? Absolutely true. Our sin is taken upon Jesus if we are his. And he gives us righteousness, the only means that we have to look like anything but filthy rags. That's, That's what this big... Double imputation means, it just means that Jesus paid our fine and we get righteousness from it. So holiness um, is a word and concept that originates out of the Old Testament in the beginning, right? Where it's the defining characteristic and desired purpose for God's covenant people, Israel. That quotes from Faker Exegetical Commentary. Back several years ago, seems like a life ago, Danny, we went through the study on Leviticus, and it was such a blessing. You think about Leviticus, man, Mark, you're going to talk about ceremony and ritual law and moral law and all these different food laws. It was a blessing because we had to dig into it to understand it and how God would use it in our understanding of his holiness. And that's what really came shining through that book. What is impure? What is pure? What is holy? What is not holy? So holiness is the defining characteristic of God's people, this set-apartness, If you remember, and ladies, you haven't gotten the uh, benefit of our study on sanctification, nor have we gotten the benefit of yours on prayer. (laughs) Perhaps we're sharing that with each other at home. I hope so. But uh, as we read through A.W. Pink, uh, the doctrine of sanctification, Pink says, To be holy and to be sanctified, not only must there be an abstinence from the execution of sinful lusts, but there must be a loving and delighting to do the will of God. Our desires are pointed in a different direction when we are regenerate. So we have a desire to be holy. Not just behaviorally to have a get out of jail free card. But those behaviors come from a heart that's changed. Pink also says evangelical sanctification is that holiness of heart, which causes us to love God supremely so as to yield ourselves wholly up to his constant service in all things and to his disposal of us as our absolute Lord, whether it be for prosperity or adversity or life or death, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Paul certainly lives this out, doesn't he? Paul is chased. Every city that he goes to, he's chased away. In one case in Ephesus, he's taken out and stoned, left for dead. In another case on his trip, On uh, on a a trip across the sea, he's shipwrecked, snake bit. Who knows? He probably even had to listen to Taylor Swift at one point. I don't know. There's lots of bad stuff that happens to trying to wake everybody up. But regardless, as he talked about pouring himself out as a drink offering, think about that. Paul says he's pouring himself out. Like here it is, God. My time, everything that I have that you've given to me, it's it's at your disposal, Lord. How many of us actually live like that, like live like Paul did for the sake, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to give up my very life, everything that I have, my profession, my my possessions, I'm being poured out for the Lord. So lastly, why does he talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus with all of his saints? So notice being blameless in holiness is preparation for the coming of the Lord with all of his saints. This is one of the purposes is that we're getting ready to go into the section of the letter that is going to talk about the second coming of Christ. There's a pretty significant part of the rest of 1 Thessalonians that's going to hit on some um, eschatology and some of those, those things. Um, but it's also, what reason would we be found blameless? As I've said from the very beginning of studying First Thessalonians, Paul and the apostles and the brothers and sisters of this time live as if Jesus is just around the corner. They live with a very present Jesus coming at any time. That's... They're pointing towards how we should live. Live blameless in holiness because the Lord is coming very soon. He mentions it in these letters to the Thessalonians three different times. He says in 3.13, our current verse, that he may establish your hearts blameless. In 5.23, we're going to to see him say, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 1 through 2, He says, now we ask you brothers and sisters regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. We're to be found blameless and we are in anticipation actively waiting for jesus christ's return it is so interesting the way that god works sometimes because as i studied this and i was finishing up yesterday we had jehovah witnesses come and visit my house it's like god you're such a comedian sometimes you know and we had a talk about the kingdom and they were talking about the kingdom in future terms. And I told him, hey, we, we experience God's kingdom right now. Amen. The kingdom is present. We don't fully get to realize it, but we will one day. But we absolutely have a king and a kingdom presently. And this second coming is the completion of that kingdom Paul appears to have four purposes in talking about the Lord's second coming. First of all, blessing, to remind these persecuted Christians that their Lord is coming. Secondly, exhortation. He tells them to be blameless and to demonstrate their love to one another and to stand firm, if you remember all the message of the previous sermons. So Paul's work won't be in vain. He also is, has this a warning as a purpose. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul warns them not to be deceived by those with a different message or false proclamation of the Lord's return. Folks, I mentioned Jehovah Witnesses, but several cults, this is a mark of the cults, right? There's a prediction that the end time will happen and it does not come true to me. What does that indicate? False prophecy? Lying? If you really heard it from God, it would have come true. Okay? So he gives the warning. And introduction is the last purpose. This is introducing some of the what he's going to talk about in the remainder of the letter. So I'll leave you with a couple of things. One is, this is a hymn that we sing, The Solid Rock. Excuse me. One of the verses says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. In him, my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Amen which is exactly what Paul indicates that the Thessalonians and by extension, we should be blameless in holiness so that we may stand before the throne of the judgment of God in his righteousness. So just to kind of end us here to say concisely what we've been talking about for the past few minutes Paul's fervent prayer is that abounding love and blameless holiness would set God's people apart to shine before the world and to prepare for our Lord's coming. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray that we would be found blameless in your holiness at the throne. Father, I pray that you will be with us as we go into our time to observe the Lord's Supper. And Father, I pray that the words that we have heard this morning, Father, would ring in our hearts. And Lord, encourage us to be in service to one another, to abound in our love, towards one another, and to follow your will for us as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.